We just got a tweet from the President of the United States. Can I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You stay, can you stay categorical? You are fake news. Reporting that President Trump disclosed highly classified information to the Russians. The world is a mess. The world is as angry as it gets. Gave alternative facts. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it. Trump the Bulgarian throws rhetorical red meat at his crowd. This administration is running like a fine-tuned machine. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Heather, we have some news, don't we? We do. This will be our last podcast. We've decided to end Freak Out and Carry On coming up on our one-year anniversary. You see... For a year, we've been developing, recording this podcast, but right now we're working on many exciting projects, both of us, and we decided a year is a good time to wrap up, in a way, a kind of close of what we intended to do from the start, which is look at the first year of this presidency, and we're coming right up on it now. Yeah, and the conversations we've had here over the past year are the conversations that need to happen in this country. We really kind of were trying to set out both longer, deep dives into American history and how they've informed the present moment and how today's politics really is part of a much bigger national conversation, but also take a look at some of the threads that are going through American uh, American politics right now. We've loved being a part of this conversation, speaking to some of the smartest political and historical minds in the country and hearing from listeners around the country. You know, it's interesting. I think in some of the, the recent podcasts, we were hearing ourselves talk about things we talked about almost a year ago, coming to a kind of closure, a kind of thread into a bow. I think we felt that it was time to close the year. There'll be other years. There'll be other events in this extraordinary journey of American democracy with this man certainly at the top of, of the heap. And we will continue to be part of that conversation, just not every week. Look, let, let's uh, let's uh, have a terrific wrap-up show, which is always exciting. Over the past year, we have had some extraordinary people on the show walking across this year, this American journey with us. And we wanted to look back in this show and reflect on where we started, where we've been, and who has joined us. So we'll review some of our very favorite conversations and then think about where uh, they have brought us. Uh, one of our, I think, top hits was early when we had Matt Bai, a longtime New York Times Magazine reporter, guy I've known for many, many years, terrific journalist. He's at Yahoo News uh, nowadays, like lots of people, and reviewed uh, President Trump's first 100 days. That's the start, really, of our journey, those first 100 days. Let's take a listen. I mean, love him, hate him, whatever. He has no idea what the presidency was about or how to tackle the job. And so I think most of his first 100 days on the job, with some isolated departures that were really momentous, like a, nom a successful nomination to the Supreme Court, I think most of these 100 days uh, have really been about Trump transitioning, filling jobs, thinking about an agenda which he had not thought about in the campaign and trying to decide what kind of president he wants to be and what exactly the presidency entails. Uh, so, Heather, he has learned in the job. The question is, I suppose, what? I hope you mean Matt Bias learned on the job because <laughs> I'm not with you on Trump learning on the job. <laughs> I think Trump learned how not to be a president like any we've seen up to now. Well, he certainly learned that, but... 
I think that this White House has been marked by the fact it doesn't seem to learn on the job. That is, it's in complete chaos right now. It's hemorrhaging people, has been since the start. It has been very successful, to my mind, surprisingly successful at dismantling the American government, which is something I did not foresee. But what Trump has done since the beginning, and I think it will only get worse, is to double down on his original personality, the idea that he's the biggest dog in the fight, that he's going to hit back harder than people come at him. He is going to run everything that the government and the American people are his to do with as he will, as he makes money off them, as he arranges our revenue system to advantage people like himself, as he destroys a social safety net that he feels he doesn't need. That's only going to get worse until he has stopped. I think every sign says that he's simply going to continue to be who he has always been until somebody stops him. And ever more so. It's the way it is with power. It will continue to repeat, expand until it's proven uh, that that won't work. A certain kind of power. But certainly we have had presidents in the past whose power base has come from the fact that they are doing what's best for the majority of Americans. FDR, Lincoln, Eisenhower, Teddy Roosevelt. You know, that is a way to be powerful as well, to protect the larger social good to protect America at large. And that is not an avenue that this president will ever take. And I'm really tired of people saying he's about to pivot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, look at the start. Think about those first hundred days. The question was, would the office shape Trump, change Trump? That's that's something that's been said before about other leaders. I mean, famously, it was said about Hitler before he became chancellor of Germany. Well, he's kind of a clown. He's a joker. He'll never make it. He does make it. But the office will change him because the office, of course, is something he is just inhabiting, renting for a while. That didn't happen. And ultimately, the office did not, I don't think in any way, changed Trump. In some ways, I think it it aggravated, augmented, and expanded some of these sort of dark impulses in this man's personality. You know, I, I look at the situation now, and some days I'm full of fear, and in other days I'm marveling at how this man has literally uh, captured the country and the world. All right. So maybe Matt wasn't right that he was going to learn in the job. Or maybe he just made the job his own and made it shape him. But it does raise another question. And that's something that you and I talk a lot about, both on and off the tape, about the press and what's happened with the press and with Donald Trump since the very beginning. We talked this summer with Nico Mealy right after Trump tweeted that photo of himself punching a man with a CNN logo as his face. And here's an exchange between you and Nico about that. How concerned are you about press freedoms today? I'm terrified. I'm I'm just really concerned. Like, how concerned am I? Eleven. <laughs> you know that. Okay, and, I'm going to do twelve. Heather, thirteen. Yeah. But I think that what concerns me most, or why I'm so concerned, is that I think it speaks to kind of this crucial idea of the public. I'm not sure that Americans have a shared sense of the public anymore. When I look at the landscape and kind of polarization in America today and the state of the local and federal institutions, that what we've lost is some sense of the public, of public good, of public service, of something shared there that just doesn't exist anymore. Okay, Ron, on a scale of one to 10 now, How nervous are you about press freedoms in America today? 
Some days I'm at a 16 and other days I'm down to six. <laughs> I swing around on this. I mean, since we talked to Nico, subscriptions for the New York Times, the Washington Post have gone up. People are saying, oh, I get it. I see why this is the only profession mentioned in the Bill of Rights. Without the press, who do we have to hold those powerful accountable? You know, what other entity of society remains independent and guided by truth? That is the job of the press. Certainly a press that understands the meaning of the word context. That's my problem I have with some of the folks on the right, frankly, or Fox News. I mean, I don't have as much of a problem with MSNBC. They are full of commentary and mostly they talk to each other, but they tend to be pretty fact-based as far as I see. Over on the right, I'm like, you can't do that on Fox News. You, you, you can't just deny the news when it just hits you in the face. But having said that, you know, in some, in some of the key moments during this year, I'm feeling kind of hopeful as this, this reaction to this moment is one in which people are appreciating the media. You call it the reality show presidency, but somebody called it the tabloid presidency. There comes a point when you're like, blah, I don't want to hear any more about this. And so that may be actually feeding into the idea of returning to a reality-based news. Nico said something else that I think has changed since we started this a year ago, and that is he talked about how there wasn't a sense of public good and there wasn't a sense of the public in America. And it has astonished me over the course of this year how that has changed, that people are talking again about foundational principles. People are talking again about the rule of law, which is something you never heard a year ago. Now you see people talking about the rule of law all the time. And the concept of the public good, I think, really comes through in how many people are running for office, people who previously were not involved in politics at all, who literally said, you know, I couldn't stand what happened, so I ran. And I am astonished by how many people are turning out and reconceiving of what America means. This is a theme that has run through, well, almost every one of, of, our, of our podcasts, the reaction the, the uh, acquired appreciation of why America's built the way it has been built. People often drifted through their life as citizens, and now questions have been called as to here's why we do that. Here's why the courts are the courts. Here's why the press is the press. And I think some of that is just what you're talking about, the All reaction, right. the swing back. And I think we're going to talk about that more when we get to a later clip. But I have to do this one first. My favorite topic, as you know... Uh, the Russia investigation, which I have followed since the very first day that news broke, way back even before the election. But after the news broke of Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with a Russia lawyer who promised to produce incriminating documents on Hillary Clinton, we talked with Adam Liptak, who is the legal correspondent for The New York Times. And at that point, he said, no, 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 it's too early to be calling this treason. My own view is that's getting ahead of ourselves. It's not unusual for campaigns to try to get disparaging material about their adversaries. It does strike me as unusual to turn to foreign sources for that, but that's not the traditional definition of treason. So, Ron, what's your take now, a year later, after the Manafort, Papadopoulos, and Flynn indictments? Is it treason? Consorting with a foreign government to hijack the American democratic system, yes, it is It is as close to a definition of treason that I've known in my lifetime. I mean, this is a, a, a hostile foreign power, hostile to the United States. And there's no doubt that not only was there deep 
collusion that went on here. And I think Mueller will get to the goods pretty darn soon. But, you know, even now, the, the agencies, the CIA is warning they're ready to do it again, meaning they're ready again to support Donald Trump. And Trump is simply backing away from those intelligence reports. It's interesting. A few days ago, uh, there was there was a, a news break that he doesn't actually read the intelligence briefings. Now, mind you, those are shrunk down for presidents. They have been for years. They're not big, thick things. The presidential daily brief, the PDB, it's called, by CIA and the director of national intelligence, is something for the president to read, digest, and discuss. Trump doesn't read them. Maybe one of the reasons is that they're saying... Guess what? The Russians are coming again and will be coming in favor of Donald Trump. Maybe saying for the midterm elections, that's exactly what I need. I need my friends in Russia to do all that they do as my supporters. It's astonishing that Trump essentially at this point is saying, yeah, have at it again. Well, this I, I'm with you on this, except I'm very, very nervous about the definition of the word treason. I think we have to be extraordinarily careful about that. And I will spare you the list of how that's happened in American history, although it's fairly We've interesting. We've talked a little we about, it. about it. But I, I'm with you. I think the fact that we now have news that all the intelligence agencies have said that the Russians interfered in the 2016 election and that there is every sign that they're going to do it again – and that the president has refused either to acknowledge that or to do anything to safeguard our legal system, says to me as a historian, not as a political pundit or a current day investigator, that he expects that they will be helping him and because they have helped him in the past. That is, I'm reading back from the present into the past. And that to me is a moment, is it is it a moment that changes are seen from what it was even two weeks ago when he basically is saying, I'm not going to interfere. That's a really dangerous place for us to be because what faith can we have that he is not, in fact, operating and working for a foreign power? And that changes everything. Look, look, I've covered politics for 30 years, and I was a political campaign guy before that. I ran campaigns. People do anything short of murder to get elected. It gets very tense. Lots of money is invested in you. You're out there with crowds cheering. But to consort with a foreign power to say, hey, help me out here. I need your help to become the president of the United States. That's uncharted terrain, as far as I know, in terms of the United States and its presidency. Look, there have been all sorts of dalliances and dealing of lots of people with people from other countries. And the founders were fearful of this because we were a little country with a lot of powerful nations in Europe wanting to do things for, with, around, and through us. Having said that, here we're the most powerful nation in the world, and he's saying, hey, guys, help me become the president, Vladimir, and there will be rewards. Trust me. And already there are rewards. The other big thing for me was when Congress oh. voted to put a new series of sanctions on Russia and only five senators and representatives together voted against that. And One of the few bipartisan moments they got together on that, if nothing else, and they let that lapse, and, let it die. And well, he, he signed that bill into law. And when it came time to implement that law, he said, we don't need it. We don't need it anymore. And he didn't do it. He said, what Congress has ordered me to do, execute the laws, I am not going to do it with regard to Russia. Look where we were at the first hundred days. Look where we are now. 
I mean, my God, it's a, it, there's an ocean of disclosures that have flowed out since those days when we started this podcast. And ultimately, I think there will be another ocean of them coming in the year to come. And the question is, will rule of law, will any of the fundamental standards of rule of law activate in and around this situation uh, in spite of truly the political landscape as it now stands. As Donald Trump, in one of his great quotes, I could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and my supporters would stay with me. Now those supporters include the Congress of the United States' majority of Republicans. And, of course, he's put more judges, more federal judges, into office in his first year than any other president in American history. The, the packing of the courts, I think, has fallen under the radar screen, and it's a terribly dangerous thing. Well, Heather, stand by. We'll be back. We have more to discuss. Uh, We're only, well, halfway through the year, let's just say. Uh, We'll be back after this break. Okay, we're back. Uh, Looking across some of the most resonant and powerful moments of the last year for Freak Out and Carry On, I think, Heather, you and I both felt that the Charlottesville show with Randy Kennedy from Harvard Law School was was really one of our high watermarks. I mean, this was after the riots in August in Charlottesville. There was a a white power racist demonstration. Uh, There was a counter-protest in which um, Heather Heyer dies. Many people are injured. The president uh, has all sorts of half-gainers he pulls in the days to come. At first point, seeming to be outraged, then not, then saying nonsense, and ultimately saying uh, both sides had very strong points to make, he says in so many words, and in many, many uh, actions in this period. And it was, it was a moment in which I think everybody said, oh, my, how is that possible? And then we had Randy Kennedy on the show. Uh, Randy, African-American professor at Harvard Law School, speaking with clarity. Let's take a listen. We are in an horrific moment. What happened, the violence, the lethal violence was, of course, terrible. The response by the president of the United States was just absolutely egregious. It was terrible. It was um, disheartening. I do think that the point that was just made, that we, we, we ought not overlook the people who are resisting, the people who are out in the street, the people who say, no, let's love one another, not hate one another. Uh, I think it's a mistake if we empower the, uh, the Nazis and the Klansmen by exaggerating their influence. Having said that, at this particular moment, we are led by a president of the United States who's, who, who, who ran a campaign uh, that was, you know, animated by bigotry, to tell you the truth. 
I mean, there's just no way, no, no other way to put it. You know, I think if we look back on this extraordinary year, and I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. You know, we were, <laughs> we were exhausted when all this started. But I think we have to remember Charlottesville as, as maybe its defining moment. Because, first of all, I want to say Heather Heyer's name. I think that's a name that is really important that we remember in American history. She's the woman who died in Charlottesville when uh, she was run over by a car. But that we also remember that it was that moment, that moment in Charlottesville when you could no longer look away, when you could no longer say, oh, I'm going to give the president a chance. Oh, you're not... You're not giving him enough credit for for growing and changing. Oh, he's going to pivot. Oh, we can make this work. It was that moment in Charlottesville, after hearing the president come out and talk about how there were good people on both sides, when on one side were people like Heather Heyer and on the other side were what was then called the alt-right, but now we know were neo-Nazis and Klansmen. Uh, That was the moment when Americans had to choose what they stood for and what America stood for. And it was in that moment, I think, in that extraordinary confusion and horror that this was happening in America and that a president was taking the wrong side that most Americans stood up and said, I can't back this anymore. This is not what I stand for. And that was really the moment when the tide started to turn and the lines between what was right and what was wrong really came crystal clear and Americans made their choices. You know, I, I have uh, written a lot about race in America. My first book was Hope in the Unseen. It's really a race book. Um, I was in Grand Park with Obama. I wrote about it for the New York Times. You know, hope is dangerous sometimes, but y- you can't feel whole without hope. That's what I feel people are. We feel most like ourselves when we're hopeful. And people were right to be hopeful seeing Barack Obama, Michelle, and Sasha Malley on that stage, that confetti-strewn stage in Grand Park. The years of the Obama presidency, though, I think surprised people as they unfolded when they started to say, wow, there is a rather fierce reaction to an African-American in the white building. Um, And it grew. And I think so much that was driving the opposition to Obama was born of race. I think a lot of people didn't want to recognize that. You know, we felt good feeling like progress had been booked, progress that would not be reversed. But, you know, interestingly, I think the view of a forward step's going to create a backlash and maybe then the forward step's not worth it is wrong. I think social activists, the smart ones, say that. It's almost by definition, when you have a leap forward like that, you're going to get a reaction. And part of what you should expect is that, because sometimes that reaction is what cleanses us, what calls forth some of the things that people won't talk about. But I don't think anybody imagined that we would come out of it, not just having an election in which race was so central in terms of who would replace Obama, but Charlottesville. As, as a kind of Rorschach of how little had changed at a deep and dark core of the country. And in some ways, I think we're still living in the wake of that moment. But okay, as long as we're going to be talking about race, uh, our last clip is from my favorite guest, Carol Anderson, who won my heart forever with her Scooby-Doo impersonation. She joined us after Doug Jones's upset victory in the Alabama Senate race, uh, perhaps the first big victory of many to come for those who oppose Trump and what he stands for. So let's take a listen to Carol. 
Now, what the Democratic Party needs to be paying attention to is that it has the African-Americans, particularly black women, have been the core of the party. Mm -hmm. And if that constituency is not paid attention to, if there is a way to shield the black community from some of the lethalness that's out there, the mm-hmm. last thing that the Democrats need to do is to ignore that constituency. And so I saw where Tom Perez today, who's the, you know, the chair of the DNC, you know, he acknowledged the role of African-Americans and particularly black women and said, this is a constituency we cannot ignore. Now, the fact that you have to say that out loud in 2017 tells you that that is a constituency that has been ignored. And this is such an important point. I mean, from the very beginning, when Trump was elected, much to everyone's surprise, it was just clear that women and people of color were going to resist and they were going to lead the resistance. We saw it the day after the inauguration, the Women's March, which, as you recall, I thought was going to be more important than the inauguration because of what was happening. We saw it in Alabama. We saw it in the people who were calling their senators and representatives to oppose Obamacare repeal. We've seen it in the Me Too movement. We've seen it in the um, in the moves to get sexual harassers out of public office, the recent move to get people who've committed domestic violence out of the White House. And we're going to continue to see that, and we're going to need to support those voices. But I will say, after a year, it still astonishes me how little oxygen women and people of color are getting in the public conversation. That is, they're running for office, they're making the phone calls, they're doing the organization on the ground in places like Alabama, but they are not in spots in the public conversation to change that dialogue. And that just just astonishes me because I think you can say from the people we've talked to, you know, the, the number of women out there who know their shit and are smart as whips and who are running things, they're out there, they're available, people of color even more so. They've been walking uphill for so long by the time they're at the top of their profession. They are really, really good. And the newspapers, the mainstream newspapers, mainstream radio, um, it's still dominated largely by white men. And I just find that astonishing. So I, look, I guess the question is, we end where? Are you freaking out or are you ready to carry on? Which one? I'm freaking out about Russia and being involved in our elections. I'm really freaking out about how quickly the Trump administration has dismantled the government. And I'm really upset about how much this has started to become normal, which is what one of our guests, Amy Siskin, has said we should be nervous about, getting making this normal. But here's the big but. I believe in democracy. I do what I do because I believe in the concept of human self-determination, and I believe that democracy is a system of government that is best organized to make that happen. I truly believe that people want to control their own destinies, and they will not give in to an oligarchy or to an aristocracy, given the opportunity not to. And I believe that that concept, democracy based on human self-determination, will prevail in America, and I believe it must prevail. How about you? Well, you know, uh, I think I still freak out on many a morning as I grab my cell phone. I think uh, this conversation, in fact, and are using that anxiety from freaking out to dig deep 
into not just what's known and knowable, but the long context of history, which you've been so fabulous at rendering here on this show. Well, I think it's helped me, and I dare say some of our listeners, to carry on by nightfall, by the time their head hits the pillow. And I, I certainly hope that is the case. So I think that's a good place to end. Heather? Thank you very much for sharing this year. It has been great to chat, and thank you to all of our listeners as well. Yes, thank you to our listeners for sharing this year with us, and thanks to Cat Brewer, our producer, Matt Reed, our editor, production genius. I am honored and overjoyed having gone through this year to say, for the last time, I'm Ron Suskind, and this is Freak Out and Carry On. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.